You're listening to TIP. Since its inception in 2000, today's guest Manish Pabrai has returned 989% to his investors' net of fees in his flagship fund. This is compared to only 401% for the S&P 500. In today's conversation, Manish Pabrai generously shares his thoughts on various stocks, including Alibaba, Constellation Software, Razer Logistics, and Shinokan. However, more important than the stocks we discuss, I hope you appreciate. How thoughtful Morris Pabrai is, and how important it is to understand the process and separate the signal from the noise. I hope you enjoy the conversation with legend investor Morris Pabrai as much as I did. Here we go. You are listening to the Investors Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and it's Berkshire Weekend. At least it's Berkshire Weekend whenever you're listening to this. And I'm thrilled to have invited no other than Manish Pabrai to join us today. Manish, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Stig, it's always a pleasure at this time of the year, just before the Woodstock for Capitalists get hung, gets underway. So uh, it's uh, like our tradition, right?、Uh, this is the kind of the pre-game tailgate party. Well, <laughs> well said. <laughs> I don't think I can I can beat that, Manish. So <laughs> I'm going to go to、uh, to go right into to the first question here. So you know, I've been, which is also a tradition, I guess. I've been reading Munger's yes, this is just wonderful book, Paul Charles Almanac, but especially the Psychology of Human Misjudgment is just amazing. And I've heard you say that you always learn something new whenever you read the book, and I feel I do the same thing. But specifically for that speech. It really makes me humble because I I feel I'm susceptible to so many biases, and I thought of you as I was reading it. Full disclosure: I'm an investor in Papra Funds, and you know I can say that since I joined it, I've been very very happy about it. I hope I don't <laughs> I don't make you sad by saying so much, but it's been a a wonderful、uh, experience, and I've started to to wonder and worry if I like you a bit too much, Anish, and. I am a bit worried in in its own way because I kind of have have all these associations with you in terms of you know compounding my net worth and like all these warm fuzzy feelings, right? So I kind of feel whenever I read something from you, whenever I watch a video with you or whatnot, I kind of feel I find myself filtering the information differently, and that worries me. And I guess I could say the same thing about you know Charlie and 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 Warren in the sense that if they do something wonderful, they're like, oh my. You know, you think you're so smart, and if they talk about a mistake, you're like, "Oh, they're also smart. Look how much they learn from their mistake." So, my first question to you is sort of like with that as a backdrop: is how do you make sure to stay objective whenever you process information from people you, that you you really like, perhaps you even admire them, and you have this lot of pollution cascade of different biases that can make you susceptible to not seeing the world the way it really is. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Stig, and it's really difficult to do. And I think most of us,、uh, definitely myself, we fail at it. So yeah, I mean, our our brains, you know, they've evolved over the millennia, and they are not optimized for being great investors.、Um, they were really、uh, our brain was optimized to help us survive, and surviving on the African savanna needed a certain type of wiring, and we need a different kind of wiring to be great investors. So our brains have a lot of quirks and a lot of biases, and I would say reading Munger's essay and reading、uh, Cialdini's book,、uh, you know,、um, is going to be helpful in at least being aware of the pitfalls. But we are susceptible to it, you know, the commitment and consistency biases, a number of the the biases that come in. And that are、uh, very much part and parcel of who we are. It's just part of、uh, who we are. The best, the best that we can do is try to be aware of it, and try to sidestep as many of the pitfalls as you can. But I don't think anyone has succeeded in sidestepping all the pitfalls. And、uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great essay, and it is helpful. It's helpful to reread it. And it's helpful to be aware that we are quirky living creatures, 
with quirky brains, which uh, don't necessarily follow a uh, you know rational path all the time. One of the things that I that I do uh, in preparation is I always go into the YouTube channel, which is just wonderful, and you know, all these videos, all the so I sort of like do it once a year. I think probably like I don't know thirty hours of content, whatnot a year that goes up. It's always interesting, sort of like to have that kind of compact experience. I, I always like after each video, I type up my notes and sort of like what you. I don't know, three to five points that, that's most important from that video. And, and it's, it's also interesting to hear about how you, you, know, you play Brits. I know you talked about that for a long time, but also it seems like you're speaking with, with there's more content than you used to. And you talk about how you know, speaking with students also helps you to perhaps be a less active in the market. I kind of felt that was, that was, that was kind of an interesting take. But anyways, whenever I, whenever I listen to you, there seems to be some themes and I don't know if you're aware of this or I don't know, I might be overanalyzing this, but you know, it's sort of like whenever you see your nephew you haven't seen for, you know, two months, like he's grown, but whenever it's your own kid, you don't really, really see it because you see him every day. And so whenever I, I, I compared my notes from the previous year, and you talked a lot about the Spawner framework, it was sort of like one of the things that came after COVID. You talked a lot about Nick's sleep, and then you also made this reference to the Walton family uh, quite a few times. Now, all the past 12 months, and I could, again, I, with all my biases, I could be completely wrong. You do mention the Sleep's framework from time to time, perhaps even more with the Walton family, perhaps it's just because, you know, not so much the smaller framework, perhaps it's just because you completely adapted that, you don't really talk about it anymore, who knows. And it also seems like you've been perhaps a bit more open about some of your investments, especially in, in, in Turkey. Ray says you talked about TAV airports and and my question is not so much your specific holdings. I don't want to make you susceptible to confirmation bias. That's not the, the point of saying this, but more about the Turkish stock market. And I heard you reference that uh, 80% of the stocks are held by insiders and foreigners. They don't, generally don't trade a lot. And then you have 20% that are traded by retail traders. And they have a, a quite significant turnover. And whenever I heard it the first time, I sort of like had to rewind, like, did Manish just say nine days? Did you really say <laughs> it's only period of nine days? And you, you also talked about how whenever you translate the Turkish word, it, it's into, you, you don't invest, it's like play the stock market. And that sort of like makes me, makes me think about what that dynamic do to the efficiency of a market. Graham said decades ago, it took like 18 months to revert back to intrinsic value. Linz had talked about two to three years, again, with a wide variants, but that's sort of like whenever they were asked to put on the spot, that's what they said. Again, this was decades ago. How do you think about the whole inverting to intrinsic value? How is that different than, than say, the data series we have about the states, if at all? Well, I mean, I think, I think Graham's bedrock that uh, we all believe in is that in the long run, the stock market is a uh, weighing machine. And in the short run, it's a voting machine. So I think that uh, applies universally. I think in the end, all companies get correctly valued. And if they're undervalued, they're going to go up. If they're overvalued, they're going to come down. And so I think that's, uh, that, that is part of the bedrock that applies globally. But I, I think that in a place like Turkey, and actually when I mentioned to local Turks about the nine days, they are actually surprised. They expected it to be a lot shorter. All the people they know basically, you know, invest at 10 o'clock and want to wrap it up by two o'clock. And so they ex actually expected that the holding period would be like, you know, two or three days on average. So they were actually surprised that it's long as long as nine days because they just said, like, like I said, that they're, the way they look at the stock market is they're playing the market and not really investing. And that's really the only explanation one can come up with to, you know, for the wide mispricing we've seen in businesses like Resas, for example, is that no one is weighing the, weighing the companies. Uh, they're just you know, dancing in and out of them. And you know, Buffett has a great quote. He says that the stock market is a mechanism to transfer wealth from the active to the inactive. And uh, it could not be more true than a place like Turkey. Uh, so yeah, actually, I, um, it's kind of like, I would say it's almost uh, 
a little bit of a time warp. It's like going back to the 60s and 70s in the US. I think that's, uh, or it feels like uh, the early 90s in India, where you had a lot of very high quality businesses at single digit multiples. And um, so that existed in, um, in Western markets, in, existed in India, and it doesn't exist anymore. You know, so uh, these places have, we will always have fear and greed, and we will always have mispricing. But the degree of mispricing that I can find in a place like the US is much, much less than many other places. Back in September, uh, you had this wonderful uh, Q&A, and we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And the uh, gentleman interviewing asked you how you read any reports. And you, and I, I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just referencing what, sort of like what I think I heard. But I just, I, I just wanted to like mention, because it was really interesting. And then perhaps at the end of it, there might be, uh, <laughs> might be a question there. But you talked about how you're looking for reasons to say no. You know, it could be seconds, it could be minutes. But then if, if it's sort of like, you know, past that test, like the very, very quick test, you sort of like went through uh, four steps. The first one, looking at the Value Investors Club for a write-up, because it saves you so much time. You get an overview of the company. There are some quantitative, some qualitative. So, and so it sort of like, it saves you a bunch of time. And it also gives you a bit of filter because the, the quality in there is, is uh, relatively high. Then if it passes that filter, you ask your assistant to print out the management letters, but only if it's written by the management or the CEO, not if it's like a PR company that like types it up. And so you get to see whether or not they uh, overpromise or underdeliver or the other way around. You, you get to see how they react before, during and after the great financial crisis, the pandemic. And then it goes to, to step three. So you would look through the transcripts with the Q&A about the business. So not, not, all, not all the curated stuff, but like where they're sort of like put on the spot to understand the business better. Of course, disregarding those analysts who just want the management to fill out their Excel sheet where they can start like estimate the next quarterly earnings. And then it goes to the final like step four, which is you actually reading the, the reports, any reports. And so with all of that said, I also heard you say in another video that here in 2023, you wanted to study 50 businesses if it passed those first few hours of tests. So I'm curious what you learned. Uh, and again, not to put you on the spot of any kind of specific stocks, but whether you found, I don't know, perhaps a new mental model you want to share or, or a new perspective on, on things. Yeah, I've made some good progress on the 50 businesses. I think, uh, I think it's up to close to 20 so far. I have to pull it up, maybe like 17 or 18 or something like that. Which is I'm I'm on track because basically uh, I'm I'm behind if I'm not at least one per week, you know. So uh, so I, I'm I'm very pleased with that. And of course, you know, when I make a trip, like I made a trip to Turkey, I see all these new companies, so I get a lot done uh, during a week like that. But yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things I am I am excited about is uh, it's kind of a new way of of, of me looking at things is uh, what I call the circle the wagons, circle the wagons approach to investing. And, and you know, this year, uh, for example, uh, Buffett in his letter mentioned that Berkshire has a few truly extraordinary businesses, many pretty good businesses, and a very large number of mediocre or below average businesses. And he also mentioned that in 58 years, it's really been 12 decisions that have created most of the great outcome for Berkshire. And most of the other decisions have just been at best so-so. So if you look at something like Berkshire Hathaway over 58 years, Warren has bought more than 80 companies in that period. He's probably made at least 10 key hires and probably bought at least 210 stocks over that period. So collectively, well over 300 decisions. And when he says that 12 stand out, it's like one in 25. It's like a 4% hit rate for someone as great as Warren Buffett. And, and you know, Charlie Munger said many times, if you took our top 15 decisions and took them out, 
our record would be useless. And we we actually see this particular phenomena of, you know, this 4% play out over and over. So for example, if you look at the Nifty 50, you know, in the early 70s, which was very popular by the, you know, 50 blue chip stocks and don't worry about the valuation, kind of set it and forget it. There is some controversy whether Walmart was part of the Nifty 50 or not. If you assume that Walmart is part of the Nifty 50, we'll, we'll take two cases here, but let's say you assume Walmart is part of the Nifty 50 and you assume that it has a 2% weight in the Nifty 50 because there are 50 stocks. Each one has a 2% weight. And you assume that the other 49 stocks go to zero. They just get wiped out. And you assume that you bought Walmart at the IPO in 1970 and you held it till today. The Nifty 50 with 49 out of 50 gone to zero would have ended up with something like a 13.3% annualized return. And the S&P is 10 and change, you know, 10.3% or something. So with just 2% of the portfolio surviving and being there for the entire 52-year period, you still significantly outperform the S&P. And of course, uh, 49 of the other names didn't go to zero. They were like McDonald's and Coke and Procter and Gamble. There were a lot of good companies. There were some bad companies like, you know, Polaroid and Xerox and Kodak and Burroughs. And a lot of these companies basically went to zero. But you can just see that the one decision whether Walmart is part of the group and whether you keep it or not has such a outsized impact. Now, if you take the other case, which is that let's assume that Walmart is not part of the Nifty 50. And you assume that you invest in the Nifty 50 at the all-time high in 1972, just before the big crash of 73-74. And you run it till today. What you find is that the annualized return is 10.2% annualized and the S&P is 10.3%. So even with buying at ridiculous valuations and but just holding them of course what happened in 7374 is the nifty 50 went down 50% nobody was in the nifty 50 by 1975 you know that everyone exited but if they had held on and if they held on till today they would pretty much be toe to toe with the s&p it's not that much of a difference and and you know this lesson again plays out where we had this great investor in India who passed away last year, uh, Rakesh Junjunwala. And Rakesh Junjunwala never managed money professionally. He was an individual investor. And uh, maybe close to the end of his life, he was starting a business, but basically it was all passive investing. And uh, he started with $400 when he was 25 years old. And at 62, when he passed away, it was $5.8 And in 2003, Rakesh put 4% of his portfolio into a company in India called Titan Industries. And it was a $3.4 million bet on Titan. He had about $85 million in total assets at that time. So he invested $3.4 million. If you, again, like the Nifty, take everything to zero that he had in 2003, except for Titan, and he owned like, you know, a little over 5% of Titan. You run it till when he passed away. Now his widow has kept Titan, so it's still compound, compounding. It became 1.4 billion, excluding dividends. If you reinvest the dividends, it's even higher. So 3.4 million was a 400x return. And so even if you took everything else to zero, he'd still have 1.4 billion. So again, we see this phenomenon, and these are not venture investments, right? I mean, when Buffett buys Coke or sees candy, these aren't like, you know, we're not early stage like Sequoia making a bet on Amazon when it's early stage business. These are mature, you know, uh, businesses with a lot of history. And uh, we see the same thing with Nick Sleep with Amazon. I mean, if you pull Amazon out of the equation, Nick Sleep's record isn't that great. And when you put it in, it's an exceptional record. So, the important thing, and then of course, the most extreme case of all of this is NASPERS in South Africa. So 
you know, NASPERS in 2001, it's a, you know, it's almost a hundred year old newspaper company. That's how it started about a hundred, hundred years ago. In 2001, they have a market cap of about $500 million. They put $32 million into Tencent and they get a 46% stake in Tencent. And the most surprising thing about the NASPERS Tencent adventure is they basically never sell. They sold a little, little bit of the IPO, but they still own 36% of the company in 2018. And in 2018, their stake was worth $170 billion. And in 2021, at the peak of Tencent, their stake was worth $270 billion. So here's a you know, sleepy old you know, media company in South Africa. They st- suddenly start seeing some Chinese company become 99% or even more than 99% of their total assets. And they don't trim it. And they don't hedge it. They just keep it. And, uh, and they end up with an you know, astronomical annualized return over the last 20 years. And so in, if you look at the 10 cent bet, it was 6%, approximately 6% of the value of NASPERS at that time. And, it, and NASPERS made you know, hundreds of bets. Everything else really didn't matter. There were only two things that mattered, buying 10 cent and more importantly, not selling 10 cent. So the circle the wagons concept comes from the 19th century on the American frontier. So when the pioneers and the settlers were moving west to, you know, stake out and take over land and start farming it and so on, these wagons used to get attacked by the American Indians. And the defensive posture they took to defend against the Indians was to circle the wagons, which means, you know, you put everything, your crown jewels in the center of the circle, and then you fight and you try to protect the center. And it's a similar concept in, in investing with the Nifty 50 with Walmart. You really need to not touch it. It only works if you don't touch it. Similarly with Seas Candy and American Express and Coke for, for Berkshire, you know, all of these, uh, you know, hiring Ajit Jain and so on, you need the long runway. And NASPERS needs the very long runway with Tencent. And so the key in investing is to recognize two things. One, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. Two, this is a very forgiving business. You can be wrong even 98% of the time, still come out smelling really nice. And three, that is only going to happen if you are able to buy businesses with great economics at reasonable valuations and then hang on to them forever. So when they get fully priced, they don't get sold. When they get overpriced, they don't get sold. It's only possibly when they get completely, ridiculously, egregiously overpriced that you can consider selling. And so this framework of uh, Circle the Wagons is very fundamental. I think it's very hard to beat the market if you don't have this framework, because you're going to be cutting the flowers and watering the weeds. And what we need to do is make sure we don't cut the flowers. And it really doesn't matter whether you water the weeds or not, but the important thing is you just don't cut the flowers. It's okay if you want to water the weeds. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. 
Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. It, it's, uh, it's so well said, Marnis. And, and I think you, you brought up this stat of the index. It's like 5% that generates all the returns because the index yeah. is too dumb to sell Amazon and, and, and Alphabet. So they're not cutting the flowers. And, <laughs> and then uh, you all had this joke where you're like, yeah, and you don't want to pay up for it. Good luck, you know, good luck finding them. <laughs> and of course, there are exceptions where you can get a wonderful, wonderful company for, for small multiple, but you know, it is. That's why, uh, Stig, that's why we hang out in Istanbul, you know? So you have to see how the jigsaw puzzle fits. So we have to find the great businesses and we have to go fishing where the fish are. Thank you. Thank you for that handoff, uh, Manis. So I'm, I'm going to talk a bit about Turkey and then see if I can zoom in and zoom out to, to Turkey here. So, you know, it's about repurchase of shares. And, uh, you know, you, I heard a lot of fantastic questions asked to you over the videos I, I just mentioned before. And there was this really brilliant student who said, why, why is it that hard for CEOs to, to buy back shares below the intrinsic value? And you made the, the really good uh, point that, you know, CEOs, you know, they, they generally, they didn't rise to the top because they were great capital allocators, perhaps they were good salespeople. You also talked about how they're optimists. You need to be an optimist to lead a, lead a company. And so you're like, yeah, that, that, that's why it, it's difficult for CEOs to buy back shares below the intrinsic value, not destroy shareholder value unless you are the singletons uh, of the world, but there are very few of those. Um, so all of that made a lot of sense. And then... I also heard you talk about the father-son team at Racist. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to give you any kind of confirmation bias. I'm, I'm using it more as an example, then perhaps we can talk more, more generally about it. So whenever you talk about the father and son team, I'm like, they're just such smart people. You know, they, you talk about the hurdle rates and the payback period of course, three years. You, you, you come up with this example about their solar panels whenever they got installed, where the payback period perhaps was a bit longer, but then they talked about how you know, the assets, how long the longevity of that and the price is going up. And I don't know, say, they, say that the 50 million is worth 200 million, to whatever. It's not so much that. But it, what sort of like tying those two stories together, I would say, I understand why your conventional CEO would not understand capital allocation well. But if, you're, if you founded Racess, or perhaps you know, we can talk about one of your, your, your previous uh, holdings, Shinoken, which I, I know there are also some cultural differences in, in terms of Japan and, and how they, they do capital allocation, but could you paint some color around why are founders who are clearly very good at capital allocation not necessarily good at buying back their own stock whenever it's clearly below their, their liquidation value, which you know, they would know better than anyone what their liquidation value is of, of their assets. So why is that the case? Yeah, so just to give you an update on Shinokan, there was a take under and they did a tender offer offering a small premium and they took the company private. And so the founder with some investors basically, in effect, did what you're suggesting they should do. And it took them some time to understand 
we had a number of conversations. I had a number of conversations with Chinookin, including um, I actually sent them a PowerPoint in Japanese on the benefits of buybacks, explaining, because I, I realized that a builder may not understand that, you know, an entrepreneur or a builder. And what ended up happening is actually they took my advice in very large doses. So instead of, instead of nibbling at a buyback, like I was suggesting, I mean, we, we had already sold the stock because we were a little bit frustrated that they were not really acting the way they should because they had significant amounts of cash flow and they could retire a significant number of shares, but they were, uh, you know, nibbling. It was a very small amount that they were buying back. And then we exited and I think a year or two later, they basically took one big gulp and bought it all at a actually a spectacular discount to what the business was worth. Um, Shinokan is was an exceptional business because it has very strong recurring revenues from all the properties they're managing. It's, I mean, the visibility into cash flows go out, you know, many, many years. It's, a, it's actually an exceptional business. And one of the things that had attracted me to Shinokan in the first place was that it was founder run and that he did not fit the template of most Japanese managements. Most Japanese managements and boards run the business for the benefits of the employees. Uh, they do not run the business for the benefit of the shareholders. So their number one concern is to make sure that the business is very stable and can survive downturns without layoffs. And the shareholders pay a very big price for a business that takes that approach. And so I generally find Japan difficult to invest in for two reasons. That's one reason. And the second, the second is the demographics of the declining population. So last year, 1.6 million uh, Japanese citizens died and 800,000 new ones were born. So we're, we're looking at almost a net 1 million reduction in the population in a single year. And uh, South Korea is even more extreme than that. So we did see uh, the founder act very rationally eventually for his own self-interest. In the case of Resas, I think that, uh, again, they were very focused on building and they have very much woken up to the fact that they blew it. I think that if they look back, they would, they wish they had, you know, given a 50% premium and bought the whole company, taking the whole company private, for example. And um, they've been trying to fix that mistake by increasing their holdings. They've been buying back shares in the last, last couple of years or so. So they did wake up to the fact that, um, oh, we should have um, kind of approached this differently. But it's, it's not easy for CEOs, even founder-led CEOs, to look at things like buybacks. Uh, basically, what ends up happening is you see cash leave your treasury and you don't immediately see a pop in the stock price. So you see something go away and you don't see anything on the other side. So it's really, you have to have a kind of faith the way... Henry Singleton had faith that when you retire a very large number of shares, and of course, you're going to see the stock react to that. And thank you for painting some color around it, because I did notice that you're saying they are actually buying back shares themselves, but not for the company. I was like, huh, how one without the other? But it, it makes, makes a lot of sense now that you outlined like, like that. So, so thank you, Manish, uh, for that. In one of our, our previous conversations, um, you talked about your, your best investment. And I don't refer, and I just want to say in all, all modesty to you, you don't refer to one of your 200 baggers uh, that you made in the past, but the, the owner's manual that you got from Jack Skeen and, and the business partner of him decades ago, I want to say 1999 or, or so. And they told you that you like to play games where you felt you had an edge and you like the single play games which also led into the whole thing about selling Transtech, um, starting Parai Funds, which was the perfect uh, game for you. So if, if you look at the, the stock market or if you look at the game of investing, well, as a game, has that changed since you, since you started in 1999? 
And if it has, how have you adapted to the new rules of the game? Well, I very much enjoy the game. And uh, one of the uh, things with this particular game, uh, it's actually very similar to Bridge, is that, you know, Bridge is a game that would take you 15 minutes to learn and you cannot master it in a lifetime. So you can keep learning forever. There's really no plateau uh, that shows up in Bridge. Even if you were playing 30, 40 hours a week for your whole life, you would still be learning. And I think investing is very similar in the sense that this is a, a game with a lot of twists and turns. And anytime you look at a business, the myriad of factors that affect where it might be in the long run are so diverse. And some of them you may be able to understand, some of them may be within your circle of competence. A lot of them may not be. So, you know, lifelong learning is going to serve you very well. So I think uh, I am as excited about the investing game as I was uh, nearly 30 years ago when I was just getting started with this. But I think what has happened uh, in the previous almost three decades is that more competency has been built up, more mental models have been refined and incorporated. And so the pattern recognition is probably faster uh, now than it used to be, and it's broader uh, now than it used to be. So I wanted to talk a bit about shares and, and dilution and buying back shares. It's just, it's just such, a, such, such a fascinating thing. And you, I, I heard you talk about uh, NVR uh, over the past few years and how they have been, do been doing a, a wonderful job buying back shares. Uh, they've also been um, diluting some of their shares, giving to shares to management and, and whatnot. And I spoke with Chris Broomstrand here uh, last week, and he, he said that he ran some numbers on, on the S&P 500, and he said it was, it was 2% that they've been issuing shares to the management. So we're not talking about like raising capital shares. We're talking about giving away in, in uh, stock-based compensation. Do you have a threshold for how much shareholder dilution you will tolerate in companies you invest in? Well, you know, we would ideally like, uh, like compensation. I think you can, you can set compensation and incentives quite well without giving out equity. And uh, you could encourage managements to buy equity. And I think, for example, Constellation Software does that, and they, they do an excellent job. Berkshire does that in the sense that uh, there's a lot of the Berkshire managers have significant ownership of Berkshire, but they basically taken after-tax earnings and bought it with those earnings. And um, so, and that's worked out well for them and everyone. So I think Silicon Valley and the tech world is overdosed on a certain model, you know, which is that, you know, you give away equity to everyone uh, and their brother. And, you know, boards don't understand the value of this equity. And many times CEOs don't understand it. Uh, and because it is non-cash, it becomes attractive because you're not really using the company's cash. So one good thing that happened in accounting is that the gap accounting rules changed a while back to force them to, you know, treat stock-based compensation as an expense and to show it as, as an expense on the income statement. And so the companies have gone to, you know, metrics like adjusted EBITDA or adjusted net income and adjusted whatever, you know. And um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's an unf unfortunate state of affairs. Um, it is suboptimal. We can still do well in, in some businesses, even with that drag, can still work out okay, but it's far from ideal. I'm happy you say that because it, it, sounds, like such a, it sounds like such a plausible thing that you give out options. Everyone's now an owner, so now everyone's going to work a lot harder. And what you basically mainly see is just the existing shareholders are, are being diluted. Well, it's heads they win and tails they don't lose, you know? And so there's no real skin in the game there. And I, I really like the, 
plan that Mark Leonard put in place at Constellation. I think that if if you're if you don't believe that you know just cash comp alone is going to do it for you, you could go with a plan like that. And uh, the results at Constellation speak for themselves. I'm happy that you mentioned Constellation. We we have talked about it a bit here on the show and about how they. They set up this kind of unique structure. I want to say it's between 25 and 75 percent of the compensation or bonuses, I should say, that has to be have to be uh, bought back uh, in the open market. And Mark Leonard is just amazing. You know, he now he's he's traveling a bit more comfortable than he used to, but he's also paying it out of pocket, uh, which is you know is an example uh, to follow. Yeah, and he and he takes no salary. Yeah, he has no salary and no bonus because he's owner and he's thinking like an owner. Yeah. But you can contrast that, for example, with someone like Larry Ellison at Oracle. So one can argue Larry is a founder. He has a significant ownership stake. Why would he need a stock-based compensation plan to be aligned with other shareholders? But if you study Oracle and you look at the historical amount of compensation that's gone to Ellison, it's been quite spectacular. Now, he would argue that he's worth it. And I would say probably, absolutely, he's probably worth it. But he would have worked just as hard because he had the incentive with the ownership. And uh, so it was a add-on that was a tax to the shareholders. That never happened with Bill Gates at Microsoft. So Gates basically always had a very modest salary and um, never granted himself any options or anything like that. Constellation software is you know, it's, it's so interesting for so many reasons. It's, it's not to derail the conversation too much. Whenever you have a return on equity uh, on, or sorry, a return on invested capital for I don't know, 30% for, for decades, and you're sort of like, like with so many things, you're like, it's almost like whenever you look at an asset manager, you're like, you want a long runway, but you also want a long track record. <laughs> so it's sort of like you you want the like you want to have your cake and eat it too, right? So you're like, yeah, constellation software that makes a lot of sense to have a track record, but now they're like fifty billion plus what market cap, so it's probably going to be hard to do for the next two decades. Well, but I would also but I would also not bet against Mark. Mark has an uncanny ability to pull rabbits out of the hat. So I don't have an investment in constellation. And many times I think it's a mistake even at the size and the multiple that they're at, because the, the quality of the manager is so exceptional and the business model is so exceptional. In many ways, Constellation is embryonic. So I would not be surprised at all if Constellation continues to do very well in the years ahead. I would also not be surprised at all if Leonard takes the company in some different direction where he might allocate, you know, he's not really a software guy. He's a capital allocator. And he found a mousetrap that worked really well. And he, he that mousetrap had a deep vein and they continued to mine that, that vein of uh, great opportunities. But um, I know that they're looking at other, other, uh, you know, sectors and areas that could hold promise to deploy capital. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. 
Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. If you look at a serial acquire, what, what is there to look out for other than, than the track record? Assuming that the management do not change, do, would you have anything where you're like, this is interesting? Well, usually I don't, I'm not a big fan of roll-ups and I'm not a big fan of serial acquirers. I think that companies like Constellation and Berkshire are cut from a different cloth. So if you look at Constellation, they have a internal list of about 40,000 vertical market software companies, uh, small companies, you know, 40,000 of them. And they nudge them probably two or three times a year. And basically, and they have a whole biz dev team, m and team. So basically, they'll kind of like what Buffett would do with his letters to different companies like Ikea. He'd say, hey, you know, if you ever decide to do something, please think of us, you know, that, that sort of thing. And amongst these 40,000 companies, you know, there are founders who are getting old, who may want to retire. They could be divorces. There could be other reasons why somebody wants to sell and move on. And for most of them, Constellation might be the only buyer. These are usually not rapidly growing companies. They may have stable revenues and cash flows or might have just very small, very low growth. And so private equity is not interested. Venture capital is not interested. And even even to venture capitalists, actually, Constellation's a great exit. So they make you know twenty bets in a portfolio, and one outlier is going to generate most of the returns. They hope, and you know fifteen or seventeen end up being either they're going to disappear or just be on you know flatlined, you know just kind of limping along. And the partners of these venture funds don't not, don't want to sit on those boards anymore and waste their time. So they want those companies off their ownership. And so a place like Constellation is perfect for them. You know, they, they can stop doing the babysitting. They get rid of these things that they thought might have a great moonshot. Now they know there's no moonshot. And they can focus on their one or two outliers and take it from there. So the, in effect, Constellation is in the funeral business. 
And the funeral business, like I wrote about in my first book, Mosaic, is a really good business. So somebody has to take care of these businesses at some point. And Constellation is the caretaker. And they're really good at it. So when they acquire a business, they have a lot of ways in which they can help the business, not by being overbearing, but by telling them, listen, we've got seven others like this. And these are what we've learned could be helpful and uh, and so on. So yeah, I think I think that mousetrap is exceptional. And they're the only ones with that mousetrap. So Manis, I wanted to talk to you a bit about investing mistakes and sort of like how to bridge that with with wonderful companies such as Constellation Software. And you know, show me an investor who tells you that he hasn't made a uh, investing mistake and I'll I'll show you a liar or at least someone who hasn't started investing. And so um Personal anecdote, it's, it's about Alibaba, but it's not about Alibaba. I'm just sort of like using it as, as a point of reference. So it's not so much that, but I, you know, I, I made an investment in Alibaba, which I know a lot of investors in, in our circles uh, did together with Charlie and, and Kai and, and, and you and so many others. And whenever I look at it now, and a lot of things has happened, again, this is about Alibaba, but not about Alibaba. So I'll see if I can get to a question there at the end. But I, I think that I, I made a mistake in my assessment of the intrinsic value and, uh, and also that the company wasn't the, was perhaps still a compounder, but not the type of compounder I thought it was. And so I, I think at the time of recording, I, I think I just looked up here before we started recording, it's like $84 or, or whatnot. It was, it was a bit painful to look at, but it's still, it's still undervalued with this new price. And so I guess, assuming that this is a mistake, and again, it could be any other any other stock. Like you have this kind of interesting paradox where you realize it's a mistake, but whenever you realize it's a mistake, the market more often than not also realize it's a mistake. Perhaps you realized because the market told you that it was a mistake. And so you might think you bought it at 50 cents on the dollar or whatever kind of arbitrary number, but it still trades at 50 cents on the dollar, just like from a very low level. And so, and I'm like, what do you do? Because, you know, you have this weird situation where, you know, there might be some some, some, some tax loss harvesting you can think about, opportunity cost, lot of loser, whatever our biases with loss aversion, anchoring, you name it. Like a lot of stuff or like there was like fireworks in the brain whenever you see that happening. And so do we as investors, whenever we make a mistake, wait for the stock to revert back to the intrinsic value? Again, knowing that it can take a long time before that happens. And perhaps we're even wrong in our new assessment of the intrinsic value as, as much as we cut it. Or do we cut our losses and say, well, you know, miners have told us invest in wonderful business and, and, and pay up and, and be patient. Let's go to the constellation softwares of the world. I don't know if, if, if there's a question there, but, but I'm like, um, do we challenge the premises of the question? Uh, please do if you, if, if you want. And how do you think about this realizing you made a mistake and, and the opportunity cost? I guess that's my long way of asking the question. Yeah. So, you know, we have to separate the signal from the noise. And as we saw with these examples of the Nifty 50 and Naspers and Buffett and so on, is this is a business with a high error rate. Even the best investors will be wrong at least half the time. And so one of the backdrops we have to keep in mind is that if you have a portfolio of 10 stocks, more than likely half are mistakes. Now, you may not lose money on them. They may not just compound at a high rate. They may, you know, be 4% compounding instead of 15% that you're expecting, for example. Uh, so you don't lose money, but you don't make the money you were thinking you'll make. So knowing that there's a high error rate and separating the signal from the noise, when you have a good amount of data telling you uh, that the signal is saying that you were probably wrong, then, uh, then yeah, you, you cut your losses and you move on. And I think in the case of uh, Alibaba, we saw actions by the Chinese government that, quite frankly, become very hard to handicap in the future. So we've seen a bunch of actions in the past, which we didn't see when the investment was made. And those actions destroyed value for the investor. And we don't know what the end game is. We don't. So I, I would say that, you know, what the Chinese government does and the impact it has on Alibaba goes into the too hard pile. We just don't know. And, um, and the second is, you know, which is, you know, uh, one of the things that I've always 
I've tried to avoid the mega caps. And I made an exception for Alibaba, which didn't help me. And I moved that investment to process, which I think uh, with Tencent is a, is a better bet. But I think the fact remains that if you're buying a business with 100 or 200 or $300 billion market value, what is the runway? You know, that remains a, a question. Now, you could buy Apple at 200 billion and it could go to 2 trillion or 2.5 trillion. And that's fine. But uh, those are few and far between. So my bias has been to try to look for businesses that were much smaller, where the, the runway was not in question, that uh, you know, there was room for them to, to grow. Doesn't mean that you know, they're always going to work out, but that's, that's the goal is that they have, they're not sitting at these massive mega cap numbers where you're saying, okay, even a double from here may not be that easy. Well, hey, that's why we go to Turkey. Uh, <laughs> so I, I wanted to, I wanted to shift, shift gear here a bit and talk a bit about life for like a better words. And, you know, my, my wife, my wife is generally not too interested in, in what I did, but she asked me before I jumped on this call with you, what are you most excited about speaking with money about? And, and I said, you know, I have two questions here at the end, and it's about, it's about living a life according to Manus. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. So that, that's going to be my, my, my buildup. Just know this has been filtered by my wife. And so, <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about uh, Power versus Force, uh, which is uh, this uh, book by David Hawkins. And one of the lessons you took away from the book is that we subconsciously can know if a person is lying, pattern recognition, whatnot. There's just something there. We don't really like to be around that person. We can't tell you why they're lying because it is subconscious, but there's just some, something there. And one of the things I really admire about the way that you live your life is about how transparent and truthful you live your life and, and have caught out the, the big lies and, and the small lies. And I, I heard you mention this story where you're supposed to take out your, your wife, uh, now your ex-wife, to the movies, and she asked you how she looked in a dress, and, and you were very honest uh, about what you said, and, and you didn't go to that movie. But you also said that you know, it, was, it was for the same reason why you could split nine figures in, in less than 30 minutes without, without lawyers, uh, and why your wife is your biggest investor in your funds, because there's this trust, like she, you, you can be trusted, you're a trustworthy worthy, worthy person, because you sort of like, you, you live that fully. And I, I guess I was just so fascinated about that. Yeah, and, and I spoke to my wife about this exact situation this morning, and not because I wanted to divorce her or to say something bad about how she dresses, but my wife and I had talked along about how to practice a life more similar to that. And, and we have also put it into practice. I, I heard you talk about this years ago, and, and I think it's very fascinating, but it also gives you a lot of bruises. At least it, it does for us. So, so perhaps if you could share your your journey in how you started cutting out the small and the big lies and what that has meant for you and the way you live your life today? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. It is going to feel uncomfortable. I think that it is uh, the small white lies are just very comfortable. You know, you don't, you don't hurt anyone and why would anyone care and just move on, you know, like, oh, your, your, your dress looks great. How is anyone ever going to know that you really thought it didn't look great, you know? And so you move on, but it's not authentic. And I think that uh, many times when we meet people, we don't know why, uh, but we sometimes just don't want to be around certain people. We can't put our finger on it. And it may be that there's too much implicit and explicit lies around what that person is saying or doing. And uh, so I think that the inversion of that is that if you want to build trust, you have to make a commitment to the truth. And the truth is going to not be easy many times. Uh, but I think that once you kind of cross that Rubicon and you know, are on the other side, what you're going to find is that trust goes up a lot. And basically, this world functions on trust. It doesn't function on contracts. You know, people do business with people because they trust them. And um, the best contracts are ones that you never look at after you sign them. 
And uh, so I think that if you, if you want to have a lot of success in business, you have to have a very high standard for candor and, and integrity. And if you want to have, you know, great deep relationships, uh, great friendships, then again, that, that same thing is really important. I think your friends need to know that you've, they've, you've got their back and that when they come to you, they're not, they're going to get very authentic answers, you know, even if those answers are not what they want to hear. And so those are, I think these are, uh, these are very powerful principles where once you kind of get comfortable with it and start to apply it in your life, the paybacks are so enormous that it just becomes a no brainer. I think any other way of living is kind of dumb and it's going to make your life a lot more pleasant. It's very easy when you don't lie because you don't have to remember your lies. You know, it just makes it really simple. Anytime you're saying something or talking about something, you don't have to remember, oh, I said this and I said that, and I got to keep consistent with that or any of that. Just say the truth, you know, and, and that's the end. It's um, like they say, it's, uh, it's simple, but not easy. But it's a, it's a great journey to go on. And it's a journey which is going to lead to a lot of growth. So it will feel unnatural and uncomfortable at times, but you will yourself start noticing very quickly that you feel so much better. That, that, that's so true. And I, just as a personal anecdote, I, uh, in my early 20s, I told all my, my, my friends and families I didn't want to go to their birthdays or go to weddings or anything like that because it just, I felt uncomfortable. And it's, it's hard. It's hard whenever you say that. And, and the trick is to say, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring in a six pack or whatever uh, it, you, you want and, and, and visit you next Tuesday. It's not because I don't like you. It's because I don't want to sit next to your uncle and six hours whenever I could be reading a book or doing something else I really want. And I can say that's been one of the best decisions that I've made, but it's hard. And, and it's, especially in the beginning, now I'm in the lucky situation that people don't ask me anymore. <laughs> but but it's, it's hard to be that true to other people. But, but you're right, Manish, you don't have to say, because I had to go to another event. You don't have to remember what that event was whenever you speak to your friend. Yeah, I think candor, candor in that situation, you'll be surprised. And you've probably already seen that, that your friends and relatives really appreciate you for the candor. And, and they'll understand, you know, the, uh, weddings, uh, you know, my, my take on weddings are painfully boring, you know. And, uh, you know, they just, they just, I mean, the only, I would say the only redeeming grace of weddings is if you get to meet a bunch of long lost, you know, friends and relatives that you've been longing to hang out with, that can be a great upside. But you are also going to meet a lot of dysfunctional relatives and, and hang out with them as well. And that may not be so much fun. Yeah. So I think the, the candor is, will be welcomed by everyone. So on that note, I wanted to ask the, the last question I have here for today. And because another of the challenges sort of like related to this, this idea about living truthfully, living with candor, my wife and I have a, we have a hard time talking about money in some settings with, with other people, because like what we talked about before, you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, right? You, you invite people you don't want to see not to hurt their feelings and they come not to hurt your feelings. It's sort of like there's this, there's this irony in it. But, but anyways, you know, my wife and I come from this middle-class background and, and we just don't talk about money. And I think, and I think most, most people don't talk about money. It might be a little different from, from some of the circles that we run in money where it's sort of like the, the center. But, but in most social situations, we don't talk too much about money, especially if you have significantly less or significantly more money than your peers. Now, you've been very open about uh, your background, having a father that was a serial entrepreneur, many failed businesses behind him. And I think you, you referenced it as a lot of feast to famine over the years. How has your journey into becoming financially independent and the success you have today, how has that changed the, your relationships with the people you knew before and after you got financially independent? Yeah. So actually what, uh, what I have found is that, uh, you know, your remarks about people don't like to talk about money. I think that is universal across cultures. So it's not just 
I don't have a bunch of friends who love to talk about money. Okay, there's no such thing. And, you know, Guy always uh, gets a chuckle because many times he and I will be in a conversation with someone who's having, has some important issues, folk in the road, trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, I'll be asking a bunch of questions to try to get the data to try to help the person. And one of the first questions will go to really understand in detail the financial situation. You know, what's the net worth? What's the income? What's the expense and all that? And Guy always kind of goes into a cubbyhole and says, oh, there we go again, Monish, asking all these uncomfortable questions. You know, and but he's, he's, he's now learned that Monish is going to ask those questions. Okay. And, and what I find surprising is the people who hear those questions, who have never answered those questions to anyone, openly give the answer. And then they say, I want to let you know, I have never discussed this with anyone. No one knows this. Please don't. I said, it's all confidential. I'm not going to, be, not going to talk about it to anybody. But people actually get relieved to be able to share the data. Recently, I had a call with a friend who wanted advice, career advice, you know, and he was, he's at an age where he could retire or he could take job A or job B or whatever. And one of the first things I asked him is I, I needed to know his financial situation before I could tell him what made sense for him, you know? And so he shared, he shared his information that he's never shared with anyone. I think other than his wife, they've never talked about it. I, I don't think his kids are aware of it. But that gave me the information to be able to be most helpful to him. And, and also, I think he felt relieved that he was not having a conversation around eggshells, you know, where I'm in a vacuum trying to say, well, if this is your situation, then do this. I actually knew exactly what his situation was, and I could tell him what I would do in that situation. So, yeah, I mean, I think people don't like to talk about money, but many times when they're confronting different issues, those conversations can be very, can lighten the load for them. And I think it's important that in a safe and confidential environment with the people near you, when you're trying to, you know, help them with some things where that information may be relevant, that you go there, you go to the, the land you're not supposed to go to. That's okay. Wonderful to set, Manish, and, and perhaps you should end on, on that note. Thank you so much for your, your time. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure having this annual call here in, in April, just before, before Berksia. So I just want to say, say thank you on behalf of, uh, of all our listeners. Stig, I always enjoy hanging out with you. And uh, it was a, um, a wonderful uh, pleasure for me to have you join as an investor. So that uh, added another dimension to our relationship. That's wonderful. And uh, though I still feel you've kept the, um, the objectivity, which is great. Uh, yeah, so I do, I do enjoy hanging out with you. And I also want to say that you and Preston are doing God's work. I enjoy your podcast a lot. I listen to many of your guests. And I think you've done a tremendous service to the community with the podcast. So thank you for that. Wow. I don't think we can end on any better note. So, so I just want to humbly say thank you, Manisita. It means a lot. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.